It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 213 for October 10th, 2010. Recorded October 8th. Yes, this is the program for 101010, which might also be represented as 101010, and that's a nice binary number that has a certain amount of resonance with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the book by Douglas Adams. In decimal, that binary number is 42, or more appropriately, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Well, this program will be a bit more mundane than that. What passes for news organizations have been all a Twitter about cyber war for the past couple of weeks. If you have any doubt that public relations firms provide at least half of what passes for news from ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox, NBC, and PBS, this should dispel those doubts. Everyone has been talking about the rules of engagement and war crimes and on and on and on as these topics pertain to online war. It's not that I feel they're wrong about cyber war, but I just have to wonder where they've been for the past decade or more. This is a topic that TechBiter, and before that technology corner, discussed more than once, starting well before 2001. Here are just a few media reports that I found, and I'm not going to identify which media sources they came from, just as they don't identify their sources. I quote, The Israel Defense Forces, IDF, which now classifies cyber warfare as a central strategic pillar, has reportedly established a military intelligence, MI, unit capable of engaging in both defensive and offensive digital warfare. The source... Not specified. Quote, A mysterious computer worm that has struck Iran has raised the specter of a cyber attack as a new weapon of war, a danger NATO identifies as a key threat, experts say. The experts? Nobody was named. Here's another one. Western experts say the worm's sophistication and the fact that some 60% of computers infected looked to be in Iran pointed to a government-backed attack. Some speculated Iran's first nuclear power station at Boucher may have been targeted, perhaps by Israel. The experts? None identified. One more. Recently, Iran's official news agency announced that a sophisticated computer worm purportedly designed to disrupt power grids and other such industrial facilities had infected computers at the country's first nuclear power plant. The agency went on to say that the worm had not caused any serious damage. However, the news agency also reported that the worm had spread throughout Iran but did not name any specific sites affected. The worm is called Stuxnet. Any details there? No. Every news agency in the West has talked about cyber war the past couple of weeks. So I have to wonder, is this an effort by the Obama administration to get out in front of unilateral attacks by the U.S. or Israel? It wouldn't be the first time that a government engaged in misinformation or disinformation. But why are news agencies such easy targets? Why do they report without validation 
so many rumors. Is it a fear that if they don't report something first, they'll be seen as ineffective? A few decades ago, back when I was in the biz, the mantra was first and factual. That bothered me even then. Factual is more important than first, yet it was listed second. If I'm the first one to tell you that the sky is falling, when the sky isn't actually falling, have I done you any favors? On the other hand, if someone tells me the sky is falling and I sit on the story until I can confirm it, I won't accidentally have spread misinformation or disinformation. That seems to have been forgotten. So will there be cyber war? Well, of course there will. Human beings being what they are, which it seems is inherently stupid, means that war will be extended to cyberspace. This was predicted 35 years ago by Star Trek, the original program. The crew became involved with a planet in which cyber missiles landed on a country and killed thousands of people. The people who had been killed were then required to report to a location so they actually could be killed. Today's cyber war will shut down the electric grid or throw banking into crisis, so it's not quite the same as what Star Trek predicted. And the war probably won't be a U.S. versus China affair, because China depends on the economic well-being of the United States. At least it does today. So I'm not suggesting that we discount the threat of cyber war, but only that we understand it's not a new threat, or one that's necessarily more important or more dangerous than other threats. In the Internet's golden days, think of this in terms of television's golden days, back when the equipment was primitive, but a few dedicated producers attempted to create intelligent programming. So back in the Internet's golden days, one of the best email programs was Eudora by Qualcomm. Over the years, those who wanted more power migrated to the bat, and those who wanted a Microsoft experience went to Outlook. Eudora was on life support until Qualcomm saved it by killing it. Eudora is now an open-source program, and it's based on Thunderbird code. Old Thunderbird code. The new Eudora doesn't offer all the flexibility of my favorite email program, the Bat, but it might be a contender if you're thinking about migrating from older applications. But if you're thinking about doing this, why would you opt for the old copy, Eudora, instead of the new original, Thunderbird? Maybe this doesn't matter a lot if you're seeking just the basics. Although applications can add a lot of variety and extensions and useful functions, the operation of any mail user application will be the same. Messages arrive on the mail transfer agent server, and unless the mail user agent has access to the server's disk, messages are simply stored on that remote server. The mail user application has to request them on behalf of the user. That's the way most email applications work. So I set up the new Eudora, and I found that it looks a lot like Thunderbird. In fact, the Eudora website says, and I quote, Eudora OSE 1.0 is based on the Thunderbird 3.0.4 source code, so add-ons that do not work with Thunderbird 3.0.4 likely will not work with this version. One significant advantage that comes to mind is the fact that Eudora works on Windows, Macs, and Linux systems. So if you use multiple operating systems, this might be a worthwhile reason to try Eudora. Or Thunderbird. I don't see a lot that's new in Eudora, but there are features that some other applications don't have. A redirect feature, for example. What happens when you receive a message that should have gone to somebody else? 
well, you forward it to the person who should have received it. That person replies, and you receive the reply. So you have to send it on to the person who sent the original message, and that person replies, and of course that message comes to you, and you end up being this person in the middle between the two people who are trying to communicate with each other. Well, instead of forwarding, you can use the redirect function, and the original sender's name will remain in the from field. This is a feature the bat has, and I found that it's quite useful. But overall, with regards to Eudora, I still have to wonder why. If you want an open-source email application, there's Thunderbird, and Thunderbird has moved on from version 3.0. Thunderbird 3.1 is available, and it includes tabbed mailboxes. You can load messages in separate tabs and then jump quickly from one to the other. Eudora is an application I will remember fondly, very fondly. But it's unlikely that I will ever use it again. I mentioned last week that I bought a Kindle, and that got me to thinking this week about digital rights management. What does digital rights management protect? Let's say you own a Kindle and that you buy or borrow from the library a DRM-protected EPUB document. How can you read it? Well, you can read it on the computer that you used to download the file. On the Kindle? Not so much. Amazon wants you to buy books, not borrow them from the library. And Amazon doesn't use the EPUB format, which is very popular with libraries. If you strip the DRM and convert the file to something the Kindle can use, you're probably violating the law. There is, I would suggest, though, a distinction between legal and ethical. Whether purchased or borrowed from a library, that book should be available on any device that you want to use for viewing it. Does Jeff Bezos really believe that DRM gets in the way of crooks who find workarounds and then sell illegal copies of the books? If Bezos will be honest about the situation, he'll have to admit that no DRM has ever stopped crooks. All he does is inconvenience the people who have purchased or borrowed books, records, or other media and want to use it on the device of their choice. If you download a book from your local library and modify it, defeating DRM along the way, so that you can view it on your Kindle, who exactly is harmed? If you read the book and then forget to delete it from your Kindle after 14 days, who exactly is harmed? Would it be better if publishers and Amazon worked out a system whereby library books could be downloaded to the Kindle, as they can be downloaded to just about every other device, while maintaining their DRM, that would allow them to become unavailable after 14 days. Actually, wouldn't it be better if we just did away with DRM entirely? I noticed that O'Reilly Books takes an enlightened approach. I quote their website. You get lifetime access to ebooks you purchase through O'Reilly.com. Whenever possible, we provide them to you in five DRM-free file formats, PDF, EPUB, Kindle-compatible Mobi, DAISY, and Android. You can use these on the devices of your choice. Our e-books are enhanced with color images even when the print version is black and white. They are fully searchable, and you can cut and paste and print them. We also alert you when we've updated your e-books with corrections and additions. End quote. 
The O'Reilly site, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, specifically takes note of Amazon's Kindle. Again, I quote, It's hard to dispute that Amazon's Kindle has sparked renewed interest in e-books, and we want to make sure that O'Reilly.com customers with Kindles can read our e-books. The Kindle cannot currently read EPUB files directly, although we hope that will change. So the e-book bundle includes the Mobi file format, which can be read on the Kindle. But it is absurd that publishers who are willing to provide DRM-free books must take an extra step and find a way to make their books usable on what is arguably the best reader. Let O'Reilly and the other progressive publishers know that you appreciate their policies. And let Amazon know what you think of their policies, too. Should an electronic book cost more than its Dead Trees equivalent? One publisher seems to think so. With electronic books, there is no inventory, no cost of printing, no cost of storage, no cost of fulfillment. But one publisher values some of its electronic books slightly higher than the cost of books that must be printed, must be warehoused, must be shipped, must be inventoried, must be sold, and then must be taken home. Is this logical? There's a New York Times article on that subject, and there's a link to that article from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Check it out when you have time. In short circuits, TechCrunch is now five years old. TechCrunch is a news-like organization that concentrates on digital media, and now it's going to become a part of AOL. I certainly hope this works out better than AOL's acquisition of Time, Inc., the merger agreement was signed this week in San Francisco at a three-day TechCrunch conference. Nobody was willing to talk about the cost, but analysts say AOL probably paid between $25 million and $40 million. And the head of TechCrunch, Mike Arrington, comes with the deal. He's agreed to stay with the company for at least three more years. You may have noticed I'm not a real big fan of AOL, a company that showed millions of people how to use the Internet incorrectly. Two years ago, AOL tried to get into social networking. It paid nearly a billion dollars to obtain Bebo. That was a really smart move. This year, AOL sold Bebo for less than $10 million. The secret to creating a small fortune? Start with a large fortune, then buy high and sell low. I wonder, will TechCrunch be the next Bebo? I hope not. <laughs> This coming week, we will see the mother of all Patch Tuesdays. It will attempt to fix 49 vulnerabilities. These vulnerabilities affect Windows, Internet Explorer, Office, and Net Framework. If you're keeping track, this is a new record number. It involves 16 security bulletins. They range from critical, count them, 4, to important, 10, to moderate, 2. So plan on a long download and a long installation. The previous record, just a couple of months ago in August, was 34. Go, Microsoft, go. The bugs affect just about every product Microsoft offers. Windows XP, Vista Windows 7, Windows Server 2003 and 2008, Microsoft Office XP with Service Pack 3, Office 2003 with Service Pack 3, Office 2007 with Service Pack 2, Office 2010, Office 2004 for the Mac, 2008 for the Mac, Windows SharePoint Servers 3.0, SharePoint Server 2007, Groove Server 2010, and the Office Web Apps. One of the vulnerabilities to be patched next week deals with the Stuxnet worm, but Microsoft isn't saying whether any of the bugs are currently being exploited. 
Last month's patches fixed other problems associated with Stuxnet. That, of course, is the threat that showed up on computers that are being used as part of Iran's nuclear program. I mentioned that earlier in this show. The large parade of patches is embarrassing, and Microsoft Corporate Vice President for Trustworthy Computing, Scott Charney, suggests that what's needed is another approach. Computers could be certified based on whether they have the latest software patches, whether their firewalls are installed and correctly configured, whether antivirus programs are up to date, and whether they're free of malware. The computer's ISP could monitor this and notify the computer's owner if something was amiss. This seems like a good idea. Some ISPs already try to monitor their users' computers and notify the users if there seems to be a problem. The Federal Communications Commission is considering whether ISPs should be more proactive in working with users who don't maintain their systems and thereby create a threat that affects all users. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.